When I was an army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible. They also called me Padre. Welcome to the Dear Padre podcast, where today we're looking at the sacrificial system in Jeremiah. Hopefully some encouraging words from that. Uh, there is a glitch in the middle. Somehow I turned off the recording, so I had to like edit it somewhat smoothly, but not that smoothly. So there'll be a little bit of a jump somewhere around minute three or four into the, the uh, talk of the podcast, but I think it'll flow okay. The stuff I said wasn't that important uh, while I was not recording. So thanks for listening as always. You're the best audience in the world for this podcast, and I'm thankful for you. Um, we have a number of people that listen every day, and I'm just really thankful that you do that. And if you ever want to reach out, let me know. I'd love to hear from you. Take care. A reading from the book of the prophet Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat the flesh. For in the day that I brought your ancestors out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to them or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. But this command I gave them, obey my voice and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. And walk only in the way that I command you, so that it may be well with you. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but in the stubbornness of their evil will, they walked in their own counsels and looked backward rather than forward. From the day that your ancestors came out of the land of Egypt until this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day, yet they did not listen to me or pay attention, but they stiffened their necks. They did worse than their ancestors did. So you shall speak all these words to them, but they will not listen to you. You shall call to them, but they will not answer you. You shall say to them, this is the nation that did not obey the voice of the Lord their God and did not accept discipline. Truth has perished. It is cut off from their lips. Cut off your hair and throw it away. Raise a lamentation on the bare heights, for the Lord has rejected and forsaken the generation that provoked their wrath, his wrath. For the people of Judah have done evil in my sight, says the Lord. They have set their abominations in the house that is called by my name, defiling it. And they go on building the high place of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnon, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my mind. Therefore, the days are surely coming, says the Lord, when it will no more be called Topheth, or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter, for they will bury in Topheth until there is no more room. The corpses of this people will be food for the birds of the air and for the animals of the earth and no one will frighten them away. 
and I will bring to an end the sound of mirth and gladness, the voice of the bride and bridegroom in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, for the land shall become a waste. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jeremiah's lament continues, and he points out the abuses of their rituals that is taking place uh, in the city of Jerusalem and the surrounding area of the people of Judah. The the sacrificial system uh, was established really pre-Abraham, and yet uh, in the story of Cain and Abel, we see the first sacrifice. And it is very clear in that story what is acceptable as a sacrifice. That Abel brings a lamb. He is the second-born son of Adam and Eve. And Cain brings vegetables because he's a farmer. And God does not accept Cain's sacrifice. God accepts Abel's sacrifice. And their falling out over it is the cause of Abel's murder, the first murder from the first son ever born. Brother against brother and Thus it always is. Wars are always brother against brother. We are more alike than we are different. And yet this establishment of the sacrificial system is clear from the beginning of foundation, the foundation of the world, that this is a system of worship, a way to recognize the fundamental connection that we have with God and with life and with blood our own blood, the blood of the animals that we consume, and the life that flows in our veins as well. These are all connections to each other to speak to the fact that all of life is sacrifice, that things are dying every day so we can live. The cycle of death and resurrection is embedded into the system of sacrifice, deeply embedded in that system. Now, what everybody thought when they sacrificed, it's hard to know. We don't know what people were thinking about it when they went and did it. We know Abraham sets up altars of uncut stones. Um, He sets up um, altars in the world wherever he wandered, looking for that city that God had built. And then the codification, the codification, I think it's codification, um, is done at um, the, in the Mosaic Covenant on Mount Sinai, how the sacrificial system in the tabernacle and eventually the temple would be conducted by the priests and the Levites. The tribe of Levi of the 12 tribes becomes responsible for sacrifice. Jesus' own family sacrifices animals in the temple, the offering for the firstborn child in place of the firstborn child, the, the ancient system of buying back your child from God, the firstborn son that you have is uh, bought back with this animal sacrifice. Today, we might see this as gruesome and uh, macabre. Um, we have stories of teenagers in the woods sacrificing a chicken in some Satanist ritual, and that's sort of the connection that we might have. There are still religions that do sacrifice in the world um, of animals for certain reasons. 
A number of other stories of sacrificial abuse are in the Bible. And this story of what's happening is this mixing together of these false gods of the nations that are surrounding them with the temple sacrifices. Um, these are kind of technical terms that are happening um, that, uh, that may not be easily understood by our modern ears. But he talks about how um, they are to add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices. And this is the distinction between a burnt offering and a sacrifice. Um, the word burnt offering is the word that's eventually translated as holocaust, a whole burnt offering, where the whole entire animal is consumed in one, um, one burning, and nobody eats the meat from that animal. Uh, the, the other sacrifices, there is, it's more like a, a big barbecue, where there is certainly parts of the animal that are given to God and burnt in, in the fires, but most of the meat is roasted and then distributed first to the priest's families and then to other people that have need. There's a lot of, I don't know, all the ins and outs of how that distribution system worked, but most of the temple probably would have smelled a lot like uh, Black's Barbecue or something like that, or Brotherton's here in Pflugerville. Um, uh, most of the time, as these oxen and and goats and sheep and uh, pigeons, turtle doves are roasted there on this giant grill. I think the grill in the temple is 30 feet high, I think, off the ground and like 30 feet square. I, I have to get those measurements again. This is a gigantic grill. Um, it's huge. The altar, the brazen altar is ginormous. And lots of animals are roasted there, sacrificed there. Um, and this, but what is happening um, is that they are mixing up these offerings. They are changing the rules to suit their needs. Offerings that are supposed to be whole burnt offerings, like the whole animal is supposed to be burnt up, are not, that's not happening. They are roasting it and eating the meat. So there's an aspect of selfish consumption happening here. Um, and God makes it very clear that, that this kind of messing with the sacrament, messing with the, the ritual that is established in the sacrificial system, is really, really serious. Uh, whenever we look at why God gets upset in the, in the Bible, uh, it's usually related to this history of salvation, that the sacrificial system is one of the, the major ingredients of God's plan of salvation. To show this sacrificial system with all its reality to, to all God's people and to the world. And then to eventually get to that place where Jesus becomes the Passover lamb. The lamb that was slain before the foundations of the world. He is the sacrifice Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Is the words in our Eucharistic prayer, those are words in the Bible. Those are words that speak to what Jesus is doing in his crucifixion as the sacrifice. Sacrifice has fallen on hard times. Um, there is a reticence to it today. Um, often people have sacrificed out of coercion, um, certainly, 
people in family systems that are on the lower rung of, um, of uh, that power structure are called the sacrifice for the people with power. Soldiers are called the sacrifice for their commanders. Um, and it's usually a coercive thing when people are calling for sacrifice. Um, but sacrifice ultimately is voluntary, certainly not for the animal victims of um, the temple system. But really for, for Jesus, what he does on the cross is a voluntary thing. And we have to really be clear in our own motives and consciences. When we are sacrificing something, we are giving something up for a greater cause, um, parts of ourselves, parts of our lives, parts of our time, that ultimately that is something we are doing voluntarily and not out of coercion, not out of some feeling of uh, misplaced obligation, but ultimately a voluntary thing that um, we have chosen to do just as Jesus does. But this messing with the sacrificial system is a really big affront to the worship of God. And then it gets even worse. Uh, There are several words for hell in the Bible. There's Sheol in Hebrew in the Old Testament. Sheol is the abode of the dead. It can mean grave. It can mean a lot of different things. Um, It can mean uh, the afterlife, a lot of a lot of different things it can mean, just like our word hell can mean a lot of different things. It can be hotter than hell in Texas, or it can be the place where people go and they die, or something like that. It's a lot of different meanings of, of words in the Bible, um, and sheol is one of those words with a lot of meanings. In the New Testament, in Greek, there's a number of words for translated hell or Hades. Um, Hades is a word in, the, in Greek in the Bible, and that's a word that Sheol in the Old Testament is often translated with, with Hades, the abode of the dead. Not always a place of terror and judgment, um, but often. Uh, There's another word, though, Gehenna, that Jesus uses a couple times. um, And it it is used here in this passage in Jeremiah. The Valley of Hinnom, or Gehenna, is the place that you can go visit today in Jerusalem, It's right by the old city of David. There's a valley there, the Valley of Hinnom, or Gehenna. Um, And the the name origin comes from the fact that for many years it was used as a garbage dump, a garbage dump where people burn things. And so there's kind of always that lingering smoke of burning garbage. I grew up in Pennsylvania where my neighbors, rural neighbors, uh, did not want to pay for the garbage trucks to come because I think it was, they did have garbage trucks that would come through, but you had to pay some sort of monthly fee for them to come get your garbage. So most of my neighbors growing up burned their garbage. And yes, people are doing that today. Um, you know which way the wind is blowing when your neighbors burn garbage. Um, it's not, a, not the most pleasant um, aroma in the world. And so the Valley of Hinnom is this garbage dump where And this is the word Jesus uses for hell a number of times, a place of judgment and torment, where the worm does not die, where the fire does not go out. Um, That is the place he's talking about. And it's used here for these structures that the people of God have built in place of temple worship, place of abominations. They have... um, They have a high place of Topheth, the burning place, and then that is in the Valley of Hinnom. 
So they've erected some sort of mound or, or scaffold or building or something in, in this valley, which the city of Jerusalem overlooks. And they've set this up. And it's got um, place of Topheth, whether Topheth is a god or Topheth is a name for the structure they built, hard to say. But they built this. And it says that they burn their sons and daughters in this fire. Some artists and archaeologists to some degree have sort of conceived this as a statue of a god, Topheth, a burning god, in that he has a furnace inside him, and children are thrown into that furnace. Um, We think of that as horrific, like how could anyone do that? Um, And yet human sacrifice is part of being human. Um, all cultures have some form of it in the ancient world, um, and all cultures kind of do to some degree today. We often think of um, the ways in which we kill people, both on a big scale and on a small scale, and the way humans are still doing that today as a form of this um, abuse of other persons' bodies and lives. And yet it is the children of the people of God who are being thrown into this fire, Why would they do such a thing? Uh, There are um, lots of speculation on this. It doesn't say in this text. But most of the worship of uh, the gods and goddesses of the religions surrounding the people of God were to manipulate that God. If I give God this, maybe God will give us something good. There is a king in the Bible, a, a king of Israel, who sacrifices his own son, kills his own son, to appease the gods, to get out of a jam. Um, People are willing to do desperate things in desperate times, always. And this idea that everybody's doing it um, is compelling for so many people in this day. And we wonder, what are we we doing? What are we doing um, where we hurt our children in our communities or in our own families for some greater good that we have think that is better. Um, so much of the abuse of children in this world um, is often done seemingly and falsely for the betterment of the world. Um, you know, the abuse of children in the, in, in the systems where people hit them, beat them, was always meant, well, they're going to be better citizens if we do that. They'll, they'll be better students. They'll be better whatever. Um, For this greater good, we will hurt children um, to do this. And this is always the motive um, in many ways. And it was the motive of these people in Jeremiah's day. And yet, God is is upset about it. Um, And rightfully so. We should be too. In what ways are we sacrificing the weak and vulnerable for our own own, uh, needs and prosperity? The, the, the punishment is grave for this, um, that there will be an end to mirth. There'll be an end to joy and gladness. The voice of the bride and bridegroom will not be heard in the cities or streets of Jerusalem, for the land shall become a waste. When the most vulnerable are targeted in this way, God notices. God hears our cry too. Whatever we are suffering, whatever we are feeling, whatever um, is being done to us, God knows about that. God knows our cry. God hears that. And God answers that 
with rescue. Ultimately, in the world to come, when everything is set to right that we long for in that day. But even here and now, in little ways, God's justice is done, and we thank God for it. So don't give up. It, in Jeremiah's day, it seemed like things couldn't get any worse. And as Bob Dylan said, when you think you've lost everything, you find out you can always lose a little more. And the people of God in those days were at the end of their rope. They had exhausted everything and tried all sorts of things. And uh, the righteous among them were perplexed, not knowing what to do. But ultimately, God is working to heal, to fix. Um, the surgery of God is being done in their lives, and it hurts. There'll be no more weddings, sound of gladness and mirth. Um, that the system that they have established that is corrupt and unjust and is pointing people away from God is ultimately going to be destroyed, and a new one will come. Jeremiah is always calling people back to the real meaning of the covenant, and that is that God loves us, and that is a relationship of love that happens in our hearts, not so much in our outward actions, although they often reflect what's in our hearts. But ultimately, God wants to know us. God wants to love us. God wants us to flourish. God doesn't want us to hurt each other. God wants us to live in peace and harmony in, in this world and in the world to come. As Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We're saying we want what's up in heaven to be down here. And we're going to do our best to make that happen, knowing that all our efforts are going to, you know, some will fail, some will be successful, some won't always achieve the goals that we've set out for them. But ultimately that prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, is our goal. And it's what is worth sacrificing for, not for these gains of material wealth and all these other things that the people of God are running after in Jeremiah's day but ultimately for more life to flourish, for more growth to happen, so that the sound of mirth and the brides and bridegrooms will be heard in the streets again. Um, every time I go by a party, um, and I used to live in a neighborhood with lots of frat parties, and every time I'd hear them late at night, I would pray that prayer from Compline that says, shield the joyous. When people are having fun, shield them, O God. Let them have fun. Let them be joyful. I'm not sure those frat parties were always that joyful for everybody. I don't know. I wasn't there. But whenever we see someone happy and rejoicing, we ought to rejoice with them. We ought to pray for their shielding of that joy. Joy is a precious thing. And it is something that goes away in the days, the days of Jeremiah. And we want it back. That's a sign that God is moving with God's justice. Amen. Uh, March 14th, but uh, yesterday, the 13th, is the feast day of James Theodore Holly. I don't know if you can see him there. It's a tiny picture. You can Google that image. But there he is in a Beretta and Bishop's choir dress. James Theodore Holly. Um, he was born a free African-American in Washington, D.C. in 1829. So America's like really new 
most of the black people in America at this time are enslaved, um, but he is not. Um, there were free blacks in all of all of the uh, Americas, or all in, of what was now new the new United States of America. Um, they were often seen with great suspicion and, and treated with great prejudice, but they existed and they lived and worked. Um, he was born into one of these families of free uh, blacks, which probably had some connection to enslavement at some point, but were either freed or somehow um, let go. I do believe slavery was still legal in Washington, D.C. in 1829. It's in the 1820s and 30s that the northern states uh, abolished slavery. So almost every state in the Union, I believe, or every state in the original 13 colonies, maybe a historian might check me on this, um, had legalized slavery at some point. So the South hung on the longest to that that gruesome institution, um, but there certainly were slaves further north. And enslaved people were brought north with their enslavers, uh, often escaping and getting free, but um, that also happened. He was born as a Roman Catholic in a Roman Catholic family and confirmed in the Roman Catholic Church. But as he realized the discrimination against black people in the Roman Catholic Church, um, he switched to the, um, the Episcopal Church. And that story is fairly complex. I don't know all the details of it, but um, he saw how certain black clergy were being treated and um, he switched so that he could be a clergy person in the Episcopal Church at the time, which itself was pretty new um, as an institution here in, in America. Uh, he was ordained a deacon in Detroit, which again was, was a very, very small place at that time, St. Matthew's Church on June 17, 1855 and ordained as a priest by the Bishop of Connecticut on January 2nd, 1856. He was then appointed rector of St. Luke's in New Haven. In the same year, he founded the Protestant Episcopal Society for promoting the extension of the church among colored people, an antecedent of the Union of Black Episcopalians, which uh, I am a member of. You can join the Union of Black Episcopalians as a supporter, as a member, um, they do great work, great, uh, do a great job of connecting our church and emphasizing the singular ministry of, of our black members and clergy and the ways that um, racial justice is uh, moving, uh, moving forward in that, those areas. Um, he became a friend of Frederick Douglass, and the two worked together on many programs. In 1861, though, uh, at the beginning of the Civil War, Holly resigned as rector of St. Luke's to lead a group of people to settle in Haiti. Haiti had been an independent country for some time, uh, about 70 years, I think, at this point, and um, was seen as a way to deal with the uh, systemic injustice and discrimination for blacks in the United States. Um, there were many people at the time of Frederick Douglass, and Frederick Douglass himself entered into these debates often, um, what should free black people do once they are freed from enslavement, once they either escape or somehow get freedom, or even if the Civil War uh, 
you know, happens and they're all freed, uh, what should they do? Should they stay and work the farms that they had to work before? Should they move north where there may be less overt discrimination, but still um, terrible discrimination? Um, or should they go to Haiti, which had always been a, a really almost at this point, 100% um, black community uh, with black government, black leaders, black, black uh, people running everything in that society of Haiti. Um, and that was also seen as an option for, by black leaders for them to do. At the same time, we have Liberia in West Africa being uh, structured and set up and seen as a, as a way to um, transcend the inherent racism against black people in America. There were lots of theories on this, lots of people promoting different ideas, a lot of debate amongst the black community and their white allies. Um, it was a really volatile time. And, and uh, James Holly uh, believed that Haiti was a good option for freed black people. So with a very large group of people from, I guess, Connecticut and, and, um, um, and his wife and his mother and two children all went to Haiti. His wife, his mother, and his two children died in Haiti shortly after getting there. The disease of malaria was still um, uh, just an endemic there, and many people died of that. Um, I'm not sure what his children died of, but Holly stayed on with, with, um, with two other children um, that he had, two sons, and proclaimed that just as the last surviving apostle of Jesus was in tribulation on the forlorn Isle of Patmos, so... By his divine providence, Jesus brought me to this tribulation upon me for a similar end on this isle in the Caribbean Sea. He welcomed the opportunity to speak of God's love to a people who needed to hear it. Through an agreement between the House of Bishops of the Episcopal Church and the Orthodox Apostolic Church of Haiti, Holly was consecrated as a missionary bishop to build the church in Haiti on November 8, 1874, making him the first African-American to be raised to the office of bishop in the Episcopal Church. In 1878, Bishop Holly attended the Lambeth Conference in England and was the first African-American to do so. He preached at Westminster Abbey on St. James Day of that year. You can imagine the, the joy of that occasion um, and the, uh, just the triumph of that. We, we don't often hear much about James Holly because of his work uh, was not done primarily as a bishop in the United States. He definitely was traveling here, and I'm very connected. The Church of Haiti, our Episcopal Diocese of Haiti, is part of the Episcopal Church. That's why we're not just the Episcopal Church in the United States. We are also connected to our Diocese of Haiti. The Bishop of Haiti preached a sermon at, I believe, a conference in Florida this last week. I saw him there, um, and uh, I think of my, my Haitian brother-in-law, um, Jimmy, who is, um, I don't think he's named after James Holly, but I could ask him. I never asked him that. Um, but uh, the Haitian uh, people and the, our connection to Haiti is a very strong one here in the United States and in the Episcopal Church. It's a, a, a wonderful place uh, for God's love to be shared in spite of the struggles of that country, especially the earthquake a couple years ago. Um, in his ministry, his he doubled the size of his diocese and established medical clinics where none had been before. He, um, 
The largest diocese in the Episcopal Church is the Diocese of Haiti, still today. Bishop Holly served the Diocese of Haiti until his death there in March, on March 13, 1911. He had charge of the Diocese of the Dominican Republic as well from 1897 until he died. He is buried on the grounds of St. Vincent's School for Handicapped Children in Port-au-Prince. Most gracious God, whose servant James Theodore Holly labored to build a church in which all might be free, grant that we might overcome our prejudice and honor those whom thou dost call from every family, language, people, and nation, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Ghost, one God, now and forever. Amen.